We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Nathan Yule, the director of Progressive Britain, Labour to Win, and editor of a new book that has only recently been released, Rethinking Labour's Past. Welcome to the podcast, Nathan. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Will. Um, it's great to have you on. Now, in regards to the book, um, the first question that I'd like to ask is, um, what made you decide to create the book, to, to edit the book and, and to contribute to it? It's a very good question. Best place to start. There are three reasons, really. Uh, so the first, and it's a pretty prosaic one, it, it became my lockdown project. Mm-hmm. So the genesis of this book um, dates back to April 2020. So hopefully most of you would have banished how dreadful we all felt at the time, but it was right in the middle of that first lockdown. Uh, and actually I was sitting at my computer uh, waiting for the uh, the results to be announced in the leadership contest when Keir Starmer won the Labour leadership, was it the f- either 4th or the 5th of April. Mm. And on my Twitter feed, they, 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 they popped up a link to a blog by the historian David Edgerton. Now David Edgerton, I think is one of the senior uh, historians at King's College London, uh, the author of a recent book on uh, building um, the British nation. Uh, and, and, and David essentially wrote an article asking his readers uh, to use what he assumed to be the election of Keir Starmer as an opportunity to re-engage and, uh, and take a much better, uh, more realistic understanding of, of, of Labour's history. Uh, and to, to, to ask Labour politicians and members uh, to use that as a platform for a more realistic uh, approximation of, of, of where Labour should be going in the future, which basically just got me thinking, uh, which leads on to the second and third points. Uh, it got me thinking along factional lines in the first instance. I mean, for those of you who don't know, Progressive uh, Progressive Britain uh, was founded last year in, in 2021 by the effective merger of, of Progress, which is the organisation I've, I've been leading since 2019, uh, and, and Policy Network, which was uh, the third-way think tank set up 20 years ago uh, to celebrate third-way politics as espoused by uh, Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton rather, and, and the bogeyman that has now become Gerhard Schroeder um, in, 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 in recent days because of Ukraine. But essentially, I think we decided after Keir's, um, Keir's election, it was time to sort of press the reset button, if you like, and to, to, to rethink how we did progressive politics and policymaking in party. And I think one of the things I, I was thinking about that at that point two years ago was essentially how, over the course of the 2010s, the, the left wing within the Labour Party and without the Labour Party had basically made much of the running in terms of intellectual discussion, mm. policy debates, and, and, and actually in terms of owning Labour's history. So David's article really struck a chord with me, and it, it got me thinking. Now, originally, this project was going to be, I think, six or eight long form i.e. two and a half thousand word blogs that we were going to post on what was then the progress website but things kind of snowballed i i spoke to a number of of academics a number of politicians to see what appetite there would be for the book and quite frankly before i knew it within about three or four months we had a we had a contract uh with 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 taurus and bloomsbury 
but then also had like upwards of 20, 25 academics who were really interested in taking part in the book. And I think I just have to say a big shout out to all of them is because they undertook this work and they did the research and wrote their contributions in the middle of lockdown at a time when uh, universities were going through a, a certain amount of, t- uh, of tumult as well. Uh, so essentially, yeah, it started off uh, gave something for me to do. It was a political point about actually re-engaging with our history. But then also, uh, like I've said, it's part and parcel of actually thinking about what progressive Labour politics looked like uh, in the 2020s and under Keir Starmer's leadership. And it was also an attempt by, by going through the various stages of Labour's history to start re-engaging with our relationship uh, with contemporary society. And I think one of the hopes I have of the book is that there is some insight across all the chapters that we can take on board as we're thinking about a forward-thinking policy offer um, mm. for the country uh, this year and next. Yes, absolutely. And I I, I just want to focus, um, to begin with, on one of the um, the, the first essays, the, the, the one after your introduction, which is Ben Jackson's um, yep. The Disenchantment of the Labour Party. One of the things that I found particularly interesting in, in Ben's piece was um, his comments in relation to Ramsay MacDonald in terms of how Ramsay MacDonald has since pretty much the 1930s been um, dismissed as a, as a pariah to the Labour movement. And yet he had such a, a, um, a founding part in the formation of the Labour Party and Labour's um, very early successes. Do you think that now, given that there is such a distance um, from uh, MacDonald, that there's going to be more of an attempt to, to see him as a, as a perhaps a figure that was pivotal to the Labour Party and one that deserves perhaps more credit than he has received in the recent past? Uh, the short answer, I think, probably should be yes. Mm. Um, I think 2022 is quite a pivotal year. It's now, it's the 100th anniversary of, that, of, the, of, of, the, of the 2022, of the, 20, of the 1922 rather, general election, which is crucial for the Labour Party because it was in 1922 that the Labour Party first became um, the main opposition party, eclipsing eclipsing the Liberals that year, uh, and therefore, and then using it uh, to leapfrog into the, into the first minority government in 1923, 24. Um, so it's a good period, it's a good time to start thinking about what, what that legacy might be. I mean, the only caveat there would be is that actually that world of the early 1920s is now so alien to the world of the 2020s. Mm. Um, on one level, uh, it might make it easier for us to take a slightly more a, a sober and more objective view of his works. But I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, MacDonald is actually the crucial figure in that first 25-year period of the Labour Party, because quite frankly, if it wasn't for his continual and continuing efforts in various roles as secretary of the PLP, as, as, as chairman of the Labour Party, then as the first prime minister, I mean, he literally knitted together different traditions and different isolated Labour parties and, 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 and sects almost, if you want, if, if, if you will, of, of what was then ethical socialist thought and brought them together um, to, to, help form, to help form what became the modern Labour Party. So I think, yes, his, his position is, is, is absolutely crucial. I think also it, it, it depends on, on, on how tribal a viewpoint I think we have <laughs> on the Labour Party, because I think that, that tribalism has always come in, into play because Ramsay MacDonald then went into bed and formed the national government in 1931. He was cast out forevermore. And I think he was the big, obviously the main bogeyman of 
you know, the next 40, 50 years of, 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 of the Labour Party's of the Labour Party's lifetime, to the extent that even in the 1970s, you see there are figures on the left and actually not on, that far on the left, actually using his name um, almost akin to, to, to Judas to, to accuse Krislings in the Labour Party of doing a Ramsay MacDonald. I think we've definitely moved on past that. Because uh, if, if, if nothing else, most people would look, now look at you quizzically and not really understand what you're talking about. But I think, I think, I think yes, there was, there was definitely a case to go back and actually saying that the, the, the Labour Party and would not have existed in, 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 in the way it did if it hadn't been for McDonald's sort of key role in, in building those foundations. Mm. And uh, one of the, uh, the, the next uh, essays in the book is, is Richard Carr's essay on um, the Democrats and the Labour Party and the comparisons between um, the Democrats and Labour. I mean, how far do you think that you can um, make comparisons between the, the, the Democrats and Labour? Because in some ways, the, the Democratic Party has obviously been uh, somewhat more successful um, than the Labour Party. Uh, but also there are some sort of um, key differences between um, the Democrats and Labour. Do, do you think that there are those sort of like um, comparison points? And, and what sort of comparison points do you think that there are between the Democrats and Labour? I think the, 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 the key um, issue for me of Richard's, of, of Richard Carr's essay, and, and for listeners out there, I mean, and Richard takes um, three episodes in, in the 30s, the 40s, and the 1960s and, and interrogates the relationship of, of senior, of, of interesting figures, sort of John Strachey in the 30s. So John Strachey was a former, it was a Labour MP turned communist who then came back to the Labour Party. Uh, Mary Agnes Hamilton, who had been a, a pacifist campaign within the Labour Party, and then and then Roy Jenkins in the fifties and sixties, um, MP, future Home Secretary, uh, Charles Exchequer, and then leader of the STP at that point, uh, and and actually, like I said, he he interrogates their relationships with various figures in in in, in the United States Democratic Party, and and actually makes the case that actually, um, that their relationships or their exposure to democratic politics in in, in the US had a fundamental. Uh, had a fundamental effect on 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 their politics and their policies. I think for me, the, the interesting thing about the Democrats is not necessarily that there is a like for like comparison mm. um, for most of the the period, um, for most of the 20th century, but it is actually the idea of what the Democratic Party of the United States uh, potentially could represent and the attractiveness of that to the Labour Party. I think is one thing that. We should not dispel. I mean, essentially, Rich is arguing is that for both Strachey and Hamilton, um, their exposure to what was sort of the, the, the New Deal in the 30s and then um, Roosevelt's uh, wartime administration in the 1940s made them reconsider views they'd had, in particular, about uh, non-intervention and pacifism in the, in, in, in the face of, 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 of Nazi Germany in the 1930s and going into war in the 1940s. And again, I mean, this is a much more tried and tested story, I think. He, he, he shows how Roy Jenkins' relationships with figures like uh, leading intellectual figures like John Kenneth Galbraith in the 50s had, a, had quite an impact on his liberalising agenda as Home Secretary in the, 19, in the 1960s. Uh, all of which I think, I, I think is, is, is a fair point. But if, you, if we take that further and move beyond the scope of what he, he, Richard wrote in that essay, there definitely has been something, I think, in the last 50 years. Like I said, it, it's about the promise of what uh, US democratic politicians can offer at their best that has mm. been fundamentally attractive. 
to the Labour Party, in large part, I think, because it is it has been normally it has, normally it it has been shorn of some of the more rigid class identities that that Labour itself had at that time. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, he's much maligned at the time. But look at a figure like uh, President Johnson, uh, mm. Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ. Now, in large part, I think his from an, an, an academic and a and a literary point of view, his his reputation has been restored somewhat by the the Leviathan that is the multi-part biography of LBJ mm-hmm. by yeah. Robert Caro, the, the last volume we're still waiting for. But it basically goes to show that the immense potential and the impact of the of the new society reforms of the 1960s, much more so than anything that that Kennedy put into into place in his short in his short presence in the early 1960s, has a long-term and lasting effect on, on, on the US society and shows what uh, sort of progressive liberal politicians can do in power if they've got the gumption and the ability to actually push their reforms through. And it sounds dark, I'm about to say, even despite Vietnam. But <laughs> if you can, if, if one can look at LBJ's record and, and, and winnow it down, so you're looking at domestic domestic as opposed to, to foreign and defence affairs issues. I mean, the, the power of, of, of the state and, and, and in the 1960s to actually bring forward the civil rights and other uh, the civil rights packages and other social packages in the 1960s is immense. I think that, that that continues to have a great draw on many members of the Labour Party. I mean, obviously go back 30 years, and I think the, the closer comparison that people, most people would make is, is, is the affinity between Blair and Clinton in the 90s. And the interesting thing there is, is that both of them took the same view that they had to reconnect their parties with contemporary society and with a contemporary changed economy in the 1990s mm. to make progressive politics in both their countries relevant again. And, and actually, as, as we know, both of them did that successfully. Mm. And it, it's interesting as well. You, I mean, you touch upon um, being able to reconnect with the public there, and that's something that you very much saw in in, in 1945 when Labour um, won its its great landslide victory. And, and Steve Fielding um, focuses on uh, that in his um, essay on the the shifting significance of the spirit of 45. And what I found particularly interesting about Steve's um, essay was not just the way in which Clement Attlee in the 1945 um, government uh, obviously portrayed by historians as immensely um, significant, but also the way in which um, he discusses how particular um, figures on the left, for example, Ken Loach, um, took the spirit of, of, of 45 and perhaps presented it in a, in a way that suited their own um, politics more than was necessarily historically Accurate. I mean, it, it, it's a continual touchstone in the history of the Labour Party, isn't it? The 1945 election. What, what do you think it symbolises for people today? Do you think it symbolises the same thing for people across the Labour Party or does it symbolise sort of different things for different factions? Mm. I think I'm being utterly honest. Uh, uh, I would question what actual factual meaning 1945 has to anyone. I think, yes, it was a fantastic landslide winning victory. Yes, it was a government that then won the peace in the UK after after, after the Second World War. And yes, uh, 
famously, it was the government that both founded the NHS and took the United Kingdom into NATO. But I think it, it largely has significance as a totem, as the sort of the almost mythological totemic aspect of what mm. that government achieved. And in, in, in particular, as we all now know, when it comes to election time and we see those Labour leaflets, because norm, normally there will be one saying that you've only got 24 hours to save the NHS. It's that sort of, it's that totemic narrative importance of that government because it did found the NHS, which I think many people, it's that old adage that it's, it, it's the closest thing that the people in the United Kingdom now have to a religion. It's, it's devotion to the NHS, which obviously has been reburnished in the past two years because of all the fantastic hard work that staff members and the NHS itself have, have put in over COVID. Other than that, I think we need to take a step back and, and, and take a view about how much of a of a cleaving moment 1945 actually was in, in, in terms of British history. I think you look at the, the Ken Loach film, you look at the spirit of 45, and it very much, there was a backwards projection from Loach's then outside the Labour Party left-wing position about the fundamental revolutionary nature of 1945. And, and using it as an attempt to say that this is something we can we can we can win again. And on some level, I think yes, it is. It is obviously a one of the the big bookending moments of of, of, of modern British history. But there are de- there are definitely questions there to be asked about is 1945 a change or a continuity moment mm. in, in terms of what was going on with the British state. I mean, let's not forget that actually. We'd had five years of, of total war by this point, and, and both the, the governments of the UK and, and, and the British people were used to a strong state, putting all the power of the state um, behind its, 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 its military goals. It was actually just a shift to ensure that actually, like I said, if, if we'd won the war, we had to win the peace. And it was part of a contract with the British people, if you like, that, that, that the state was then going to put all its muscle behind uh, renewing a new social contract with, with with the population as 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 payment for the war years. Also, when you start looking at uh, many of those big achievements of 1945, again there was a question: Were these big thunderclap moments, or were they, albeit sped up, uh, a continuation of trends that had been ongoing since the 1920s in terms of social programs and provision that had been increased in piecemeal form? by both uh, Labour and I think it's important to remember here, by Conservative governments. I mean, Neville Chamberlain obviously gets gets a lot of, has got a lot of flack since 1938, <laughs> uh, 39, being the arch of But actually in terms of a social domestic programme, he was probably the most enlightened politician in, in, in the interwar era. And in fact, that many of uh, many of the social programmes that we, we all take for granted were the... Uh, had been, had been put into place by Attlee and, and, and the Labour government in 1945, were in some ways, like I said, albeit accelerated, a continuation of the work that, that Chamberlain had put in before that. Yeah. Uh, and, and you wouldn't get, uh, I very much doubt you'd get Ken Loach or anybody else arguing that they were the inheritors of Neville Chamberlain's, uh, of Neville Chamberlain at any point soon. So you're right, it does depend which cut of history you take. I mean, the other area to look at, and uh, this is what animated Steve Stephen Fielding for writing this in the first place, is that 1945, Attlee, Attlee, Ernest Bevin, many of the other figures in, in, that, in that government, were for decades held up as being traitors by the hard left in the Labour Party or, or left-wing extra-parliamentary parties because we went into NATO, because it wasn't a proper 
socialist program or proper socialist revolution that the country has entertained after 1945. Um, so yes, it, it's about accommodation um, and, and, and how you use history. And I think the last point on this is with Boris Johnson number 10 at the moment, these questions of actually what is a truthful or a useful interpretation of history and how one clothes oneself in, in, in old clothes and stories of the past becomes a fantastically important one because I think we, we are all aware of the fact that the Prime Minister has at times a sort of a tangential relationship to the truth when he's clothing himself in, in Churchill's pinstripe and, and bowler hat maintaining his... He, he's the champion of the nation in, in, in the 2020s against against Europe and other undesirables. Uh, when in in reality, we know that the, the truth is far from it. Mm. In 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 terms of that strong um, state that you mentioned there, one of the things that I thought was um, particularly interesting in um, Glenn O'Hara's piece on Harold Wilson um, was the not not just the analysis of the um, 64 to 70 government, which of course a lot of people um, praise anyway, but also his analysis on the um, the 74 to 76 um, period of office in, in, in which Wilson returned as prime minister, and which um, Glenn argues that you know things were still uh, achieved then in, in, instead of it being um, retroactively um, seen as somewhat of a, a lame duck period. I mean, looking back at, at, at Wilson, he is a figure that does seem to sort of um, shift in terms of um, perception between, um, you know, different members of the Labour Party and historians as well. And um, Keir Starmer said that he, he uh, famously, he said that uh, if there was any Labour Prime Minister, previous Labour leader or Labour Prime Minister he wanted to um, embrace or, or, or to invoke, it was Harold Wilson. So do you think now that there is a, a, a sense that um, Wilson, both as a person uh, and, and as a, a leader of a, a government, is being recognised more than um, he was previously? That's an interesting question, if only because I think that's a question that sort of politicians and historians have, have picked at occasionally for the past yeah. 30 years. I'm old enough to remember the, la the, la the last time in the early 1990s well, the first time rather than the early 1990s when I, sort of academics and historians were asking, is the time ripe for a revival in Harold Wilson? I think the argument has always been, and largely off the back of, of, of the publication of Ben Pimlock's biography of uh, Wilson, which I think either came out in 1991 or 92. Um, and actually, I'm going off the point now, it was actually one of the main reasons why I, I became sort of so interested in Labour Party history in, in, in the first instance. I mean, it's a remarkably well well-written book and I would recommend any readers out there uh, go and buy a copy um, but the issue ends up being with Wilson I think participants in the Labour Party be they activists or politicians or, or government ministers after 1997 have always found it quite difficult to um, to look at Wilson and his period in office without uh, without being able to sort of discount what came afterwards so Blair's view on Wilson or rather Tony Blair's view on Wilson in the in, in the mid-2000s at least was that essentially Wilson either failed or shirked from the hard tasks of modernization of, of, of British industry and British society in the 60s and 70s which then led us almost inexorably to what came in the 1980s and a, and a much sort of the harsher winds of Thatcherism that blew that, that blew through British society um, I think 
and actually from from that post hoc view, it's, it's it's difficult to argue with that. I mean, I'm not quite sure whether I think it, I, th- I think it's a bit too too, too binary a reading to say that yeah. Wilsonian failure ultimately and automatically led to Thatcherite triumph. Um, but, but but then again, I was only born in I, I was only three at the time that Margaret Thatcher came in, so I think my, I, I don't really have much of a obviously I have no uh, cognizant memory of what went on. I think what I do think about Wilson is, uh, and in particularly the 1970s, as you mentioned, uh, and, and this is the, I think the, the question that is there, is whether now Britain, having made it through the vicissitudes of, of the 2010s, which I think we, we can all agree is uh, the most turmoil-ridden decade that the UK has had since at least the 80s, if not the 1970s, is that does one have a more favourable or charitable view of Harold Wilson in 2020 than one did? In 2010, mm-hmm. so I would say that virtually most politicians in the 2010s have been failures. Both Cameron and May were failures. I think um, Ed Miliband uh, and and then Jeremy Corbyn uh, were but b- both failed in their task of of taking the Labour Party into successful victories. I mean, we we we've lost four general elections on the bounce. Um, which is, is, is not a fantastic record. Um, but if you look at the social, both the social and economic turmoil of, 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 of the 2010s, I think I do have a slight more, I, I, I do have more of a, of a glimmer of, of appreciation for what Wilson achieved in the 1970s, A, by keeping the Labour Party the show on the road, by getting into government. I mean, in 1974, let's not forget, Labour was elected because actually it was deemed to be the most credible party in terms of providing social and uh, social and industrial peace to the UK after what had been basically three three three, to- three and a half torrid years under Ted Heath and 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 and, and shocking levels of, of industrial instability uh, and also looking at other issues going on about what was essentially civil war in Ireland what was that first referendum on Europe. Now, Ireland notwithstanding, I'm, I'm not sure any any UK government comes out of comes out of Northern Ireland with much credit or much grace in the 1970s. But actually, I think Wilson, having kept the Labour Party together, having worked his way around um, his, his renegotiations with uh, what was then the European Community, and keeping the part, keeping the country in in the European what, what yes, what, what was then the European Community, it, it, it does put his achievements in a slightly different light. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're coming to the end uh, of the podcast, Nathan. It's been great to have you on, and I have one final question for you. If you Should. could meet any um, person from the history of the Labour Party going back well over 100 years who you've not been able to meet, uh, which person would you meet? Uh, uh, right, I'm going <laughs> to cheat and give you two answers. Okay. One, who I kind of met, right? So the first would be Barbara Castle, mm-hmm. and this is the person I, I kind of met. Uh, I said hello to her. So I think in my second or third week at university in, in 1995, Margaret Castle came to talk to the University Labour Club. Uh, and I was struck then about being in the presence of somebody who was an important figure from the Labour Party's history, but like I said, didn't have a chance to talk to her. And indeed, I think it would be fascinating to sit down and have had a drink or, 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 or discussion with her in her heyday. So Barbara Castle's the first. And I think Anthony Crossland would be the second um he's he's a figure i've always admired trem- admired tremendously and, and again i think he is someone who's writing to the 1970s potentially could tell us more in the 2020s than we've uh, than we realize bearing in mind that obviously that that, that crosland 
vision of society and 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 way of paying paying our way through greater aspiration sort of has not necessarily been at the top of uh, anyone's reading list for the last the last the last couple of years. So I think maybe it's time we uh, we, we unearthed our copies of socialism now and um, and and reread our Crossland and see what he had to say to us from a similar period of uh, social unrest and economic turmoil. Well, I think those are two um, fantastic answers and, and, and two very um, uh, mighty figures in the Labour Party who I'm sure any of our listeners would um, like to have met if they, if they had the um, opportunity. Well, if I can, if I can interject yes. and turn, turn, turn the table, who would you like to meet, Will? Well, I would actually um, like to meet Ramsay MacDonald. Because I, th- I think that, um, as, as we've mentioned, you know, as you mentioned at the start, he was a figure who was enormously um, important, um, you know, to the, the history of the Labour Party, but also someone um, who went from being the um, illegitimate son of a, a farm labourer in, in rural Scotland to being prime minister. And I think that that's an incredible um, story, particularly in the era that he lived. So I think he would be someone who would be fascinating to, to, to meet and, and, and to talk to. And also, I guess, speaks to one of the enduring sort of qualities and values of the Labour Party that, that, that seems to sort of hover in and out of fashion, depending on who's the leader. McDonald's himself is probably in, encapsulates sort of that value of aspiration and social mobility in, in terms of the leader more than anybody else who's ever led the Labour Party. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that, that's, a good, that's a good answer. Absolutely. Well, thank you once again um, for coming on the podcast, Nathan. If people want to buy the book, where should they go uh, to buy it? So currently, and this sounds like a humble brag, the book <laughs> is back in uh, the book. The book the book sold out. The first printing of the book sold out within the first 10 days of it being published. I think we're recording this now on, what is it, the, the, 4th, of, yeah. the 4th of March. The second printing of the book should be available via Bloomsbury. Um, and the third printing is on its way. So I think hopefully you should be able to buy the um the book in bloomsbury as a special offer to to, to listeners we can give you a 35 percent discount on the book so if you buy the book via the bloomsbury website and tap in the discount co- code progressive 35 you should get 35 percent off off the book otherwise um it is available mostly online i think i'm not i'm not quite sure it's made in, into that many shops but um mostly online wherever you buy your books Fantastic. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at the Debated Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.